From Nevada Public Radio, I'm Joe Shaneman. It's State of Nevada. Two big stories revolving around matters in local police departments emerged in the last week. One focused on what the Review Journal described as a cover-up of a Henderson police officer's alleged driving under the influence incident. The other is about discrepancies between what gubernatorial candidate Joe Lombardo said about the number of ghost guns found by his officers when he was sheriff of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Ghost guns don't have serial numbers, and a Nevada company has been one of the main manufacturers of kits that people can buy to assemble those guns. Candidate Lombardo said it wasn't a big issue for Metro Police when he was there, as his department had only dealt with a handful of incidents where those guns were found. Then, as governor, he last year vetoed a bill that would have banned ghost guns. But a new report by KUNR in Reno and American Public Media actually said something quite different. We'll get to the Henderson DUI issue with the Review Journal reporter who wrote that story, but first, the ghost gun story. KUNR's Burt Johnson was one of the reporters for that story, which involved the analysis of 40,000 records. Burt, welcome back to State of Nevada. Thanks, Joe. So, Burt, first, what drew your attention to the issue of ghost guns in Nevada? Well, this all started for me uh, during the 2021 legislative session, which I was actually covering for KNPR and CAP Radio at the time. During that session, lawmakers introduced a bill that would have banned ghost guns. And at the time, it passed. But then after it passed and was signed into law by former Governor Steve Sisolak, the company who manufactures most of these ghost guns, which is based in Nevada, sued the state. And they got part of that law overturned. So that's kind of where it picked up for me. By the way, how is that company Polymer 80 doing now? That's a little hard to say. They haven't responded to any of my requests for an interview. It's just been radio silence whenever I reach out to them. But in the last few years, they've lost a few big court cases, especially in California, where a judge ordered them to pay a $5 million settlement. And then in Washington, D.C., a judge ordered them to pay a $4 million settlement. So they're on the hook for a lot of money. But since they're a privately owned company, you know, there's no way to really say how much assets they have. I wonder for listeners, if, if you could give a little bit of information about your background, because you do have quite an extensive background in relation to guns. I mean, you're a huge gun supporter as a young person. That's right. I grew up in the gun culture. Shooting sports was something that me and my dad really bonded over. So Starting when I was about 12, we started going to gun shows all the time. We would come to Reno for those. And we, through the gun scene, kind of got radicalized over time. I know I definitely did. And, you know, it took years as an adult for me to kind of deprogram myself from a lot of the far-right ideology that I had picked up as a result of being part of that culture, part of that scene. And that was very difficult, of course, but on the positive side, you know, I'm able to understand pretty clearly what gun people are talking about when they when they talk about issues like ghost guns, because just like any other subculture, they have their own jargon, if you will. You know, they have specific ways that they refer to things. There's a lot of ideology that goes into an issue like ghost guns as well, and that really helped me decode what I was seeing. So for this story, how did it start or where did you start? I mean, what did you do to get going on this? I started by looking into Polymer 80, actually. So going back to 2021, of course, they sued and overturned part of the first attempt to ban ghost guns. 
that court case is actually pending. It's before the Nevada Supreme Court. So it's sort of an open question. But in 2023, the following legislative session, lawmakers tried to ban ghost guns again. And then Joe Lombardo was in office at that point, and he vetoed that ban. And I thought, well, how is this relatively small company so influential in our state? And, you know, because they are, according to law enforcement, they're the largest supplier of ghost guns in the country, they're influential in general. So I started by looking into them. And then I stumbled across this uh, sort of pre-campaign interview that that now Governor Joe Lombardo did while he was still sheriff of Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, where he talked about the numbers of ghost guns his department had seen, and it just didn't sound right. And so from there, we started doing records requests and basically put together the, the data that we used in our analysis. So did... Las Vegas, did the police department here give you 40,000 records or reports to sift through? I mean, how did this come about? Yes, they did. We had asked them for basically, we had asked them to do a keyword search and say, can you tell us how many times your officers have encountered ghost guns? The kind of the law enforcement word for ghost guns is privately made firearms or PMFs. So we Mm. asked them basically to look for a bunch of keywords for us that didn't yield many results. And then I sent them the quote that Joe Lombardo had said during this, this press conference. And he told this group, the Nevada firearms coalition pack that he and the department had been tracking ghost guns for about a year at that point. And so I sent the department that language and then they came back with an internal report. The internal report was pulled from a list of every gun they had impounded since 2015 up until basically the end of October 2023. In essence, what did you find? Yeah, we found that the number of ghost guns at the time Governor Lombardo did that interview was much higher than his estimate. There were We counted 252 ghost guns that had been recovered by police by June 2021. Another thing he said in the interview was none of these have been utilized in a crime. We found that was incorrect. At that point, there was one relatively high profile case that happened on the Las Vegas Strip where a 20-year-old man accidentally killed his 16-year-old brother with a ghost gun that he had built himself. We also found other serious crimes that were connected to ghost guns, including domestic violence cases. There's at least one armed robbery where the suspects were alleged to have used a, a, a polymer 80 handgun. And beyond that, we also saw a lot of cases where someone who was not supposed to have a gun at all was found with a ghost gun. You also have a graph in the story that shows a continual climb in the number of these ghost guns, guns without serial numbers or guns made from parts from kits. Has that declined at all? It looks like it It just keeps going up every single year. It does. And the rate of growth has been like leveling off, I would say, in the last couple of months. But if you look at the year over year trends, it still is uh, on the upswing, broadly speaking. So um, like I said, we have data that goes up until the end of October last year. And by that point, LVMPD officers were continuing to recover dozens of these guns every month. 
A lot of people are going to ask this question. You know, a gun is a gun. Why are these particular guns seen as a problem? Why are serial numbers on guns important? Yeah, and I'll do my best to not get too far into the weeds because it gets really complicated. (laughs) But the broad strokes are, under federal law, every gun that's sold in the United States has to have a serial number stamped onto it by the manufacturer. Every federally licensed gun dealer has to conduct a background check for every gun they sell to a, a normal person, and they have to keep records of that sale. So there's a paper trail that you're supposed to have for every gun. There's a loophole, though, and this is where ghost guns come in. If a gun frame or receiver, which is the, the part that legally has to have the, fi- the serial number on it, if it's not fully finished, then it's not considered a gun under federal law. And so it doesn't need to have a serial number, and it can be sold without a background check or a paper trail. Now, it gets really complicated here because there's some new regulations that the Biden administration put into effect, but there's a federal court case involving that too. So for the time being, these are all considered guns. But up until that went into effect, you could order Polymer 80, for example, used to offer what they called a buy-build-shoot kit, which was every piece you needed for the complete firearm but the frame of the handgun essentially the handle of the handgun was not finished but they would give you all the tools you needed to finish it and they could send that straight to your house without a background check or without keeping any record of the sale if they didn't feel like it the last time i saw people selling this kind of gun this these ghost guns at a gun show here in reno i believe was in november it was last fall And so you could also do that. You could go to a gun show, pay cash, go finish this gun at home, and essentially there was no record at all. And by the way, we will have a copy of KNR's report on this and the audio that you can find on our website, knpr.org. We emailed a request to the governor's office to respond to this. Didn't get a response. How did they respond to you? You know, they said that these were the, the statistics he had been given at the time, and it was a pretty short statement, but, you know, they're essentially saying, yes, this is hello, the is this audio any better? You know, because this is so complicated, I One, really do want to give four, five. him and or LVMPD an opportunity to try and clarify. Now, to be clear, also, LVMPD sent us a statement where they explained that, you know, because of the way they categorize guns and other kinds of crime data, sometimes statistics change over time. That's absolutely true. And until the middle of 2021, Las Vegas Metro did not have a unified single code for ghost guns. So it was all over the map. So the data is messy, and I get that. It's complicated. I do think it's important to keep some context in mind, though. At this point in 2021, departments like LAPD, which is relatively close to Las Vegas, They were already well aware of this trend and the problem it was creating in their community. So there's been conversation about this within the law enforcement community going back years. They've been warning about this since before 2020. It sounded like at the start of this, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department was very cooperative, but there was also a point when Metro had you talking to lawyers. How come? What issues were coming up that they thought needed legal attention? So this was a little bit of back and forth just about the 
the kinds of records they were going to share. When they're tracking this data within the department, they have a column for serial number. And that's the first few copies of this data we got that was all redacted. I think it's because that's a privacy concern, because like I said, every gun's serial number can be traced back to initial an initial purchase. Mm-hmm. But what we worked with the lawyer on was whether they would be able to say whether or not each gun had a serial number. We didn't want to see the serial number itself. That didn't matter to us because we were looking for guns that had no serial number at all. And so we got the final data set that we used that helped us identify some of the ghost guns that officers had missed. You talked to the Nevada Firearms Coalition Political Action Committee, and that's that group that candidate Lombardo had talked to where you got the quotes from him saying, you know, it wasn't that big of an issue. That pack kind of questioned the records from Metro that you looked at. Did they give a rationale for that? No, they didn't. And honestly, it was a fairly short statement. But what I think might have been going on is within like pro-gun organizations within the gun culture at large, they're very wary that people who are talking about ghost guns might be mistaking them for guns that originally had a serial number, but the serial number was filed off. Mm-hmm. We were super careful to exclude all of those kinds of guns from our analysis. Coming down to the issue of whether or not serial numbers are useful as a way to track crime guns, I don't think that law enforcement would bother trying to do that if it wasn't helpful. The story has been out at this interview only a couple of days. I wonder if politicians or listeners or state residents, anybody, are are they responding or emailing you or saying anything yet about it? We're the first people to report on this issue in Nevada. Now, other states have law enforcement and government agencies that have been raising the alarm about ghost guns. And so they have been really willing to publish their own data. But in Nevada, we don't have any departments that had gotten to the point yet where they were readily sharing this data So, you know, that's a potential area where if, for example, the state government wanted to invest some time and resources, I think that could go a long way towards giving people a fuller picture of the impact here in our state. Bert Johnson is a reporter for KUNR in Reno. Bert, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Joe. It's great to be on. And we're going to have a copy of that story and the audio related to that story on our website, knpr.org. And now on to the other story about police from last week. This story was in the Review Journal and came with this headline. Henderson police covered up colleagues' DUI internal probe claims. RJ investigative reporter Brianna Erickson wrote the story. Brianna, welcome to State of Nevada. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. So uh, of these two stories we're highlighting, this one focuses on a department that seems at least internally, to have some severe disagreements between officers. And it comes on the heels of your story last year, detailing how the department decided to vet reporters before talking to them. And we're going to have copies of those stories at our website, knpr.org. And before we get more into this, I did call and talk to someone in the Henderson Police Department public information officer. She told me to email them a request. I did, but we did not get a response. So, Brianna, this story is about an officer and an internal investigation in the department about an alleged DUI by this officer. Talk about the details. What happened? When did it happen? And and this cover-up, how did that happen? Yeah, 
Well, this kind of goes all the way back to April 2021 when Henderson officer Catherine Cochran's car crashed at Avengera Park. Her car had been reported for drunk driving just a few minutes earlier. Nobody could place her behind the wheel, but she was the only one at the scene after the crash, and witnesses described her being visibly drunk. Um, They said they saw nobody else leaving the scene. After the sergeant arrived, Officer Cochran called one of her friends, who later came to the scene and said he was the driver. Even though there was no evidence that he was driving, officers determined he was the driver but did not issue him a citation. Internal Affairs only began investigating this after another officer reported this to HR, saying that Sergeant John Bellow had told her about it and described it as taking care of their own. And all officers involved were immediately placed on paid leave for about a year and a half. Uh, They were eventually recommended to be fired by former Deputy Chief of Police Michael Blow. And, you know, that case kind of dragged out until um, Police Chief Chadwick took over in May. And she held a pre-disciplinary hearing in which she reduced the discipline and gave officers probation. She did demote the sergeant. as part of a combined discipline for a couple other cases that was pending against him. So all these officers are back on the force now? Correct, yes. There are some really interesting parts of the story. There's a lot of details, but there's one particular detail that stuck out to me because it's taken years for departments in Nevada to get body cams. And it was a huge controversy when it was like 10, 12 years ago when they first started getting them. And there's a part in the story where you talk about one of the officers motioning to other officers to either turn off their body cams or to lower the microphones. Talk about that. What, what kind of motion were they making? Yeah. Well, first, uh, the sergeant never turned on his body camera footage, um, according to the internal affairs report. And there were moments where Officer Cochran, though she was acting as a civilian at that time um, and a suspect in a DUI investigation, had made a gesture to Officer Mercer Myers, who muted her body camera footage uh, in, in response. And there was also another moment where Officer Marissa Myers was talking to Officer Cochran at the scene, and another officer walked up, and they captured um, her saying something to the effect of, we need to make this look less suspicious. And um, when her friend uh, Donovan Reyes showed up at the scene to claim he was the driver, Marissa Myers had muted her camera for that important interaction. So it's it's unclear what they said, but uh, investigators found that suspicious as well. You had a retired deputy chief from the LAPD review this case, and he said this, It is abundantly clear to me that the honest officers of the Henderson Police Department are operating within a deeply entrenched culture of corruption. And that was Deputy Chief Stephen Downing. You know, I, I know not to ask you for your sources, but there are always people who are disgruntled, who will talk to reporters. There are also people who want change or see things going wrong who will reach out. If you had to describe it, what, what's the culture like now in the Henderson Police Department? Are there officers who are, are in opposition to each other? I think there's people that are uh, super in line with the union. Um, The union voted no confidence in the last chief, and I think a lot of people strongly believed in that. There are some officers who, you know, thought the chief was trying to hold people to account, you know, as in this case. And I think there's some division among, you know, whether or not um, 
account what accountability looks like in the department. I will I'll say that. Yeah, you talked about Holly Chadwick. She was named chief about a year, almost a year ago, and she'd been with the department for 22 years. Is there a sense, uh, at least among sources or, or in the department, that Chief Chadwick is going along to get along or that she has come up in the department and she is more of one of the police officers than their boss? I'll say I talked to an expert in policing for another story, and she kind of mentioned that police chiefs have to balance a couple things, one being what is how to serve the public, what does the public want, but also how to, you know, appease the unions. And that can be a tricky job. I I would say, um, you know, Chief Chadwick did recommend another officer be fired who was a suspect in a DUI investigation and involved in a hit-and-run uh, former union president, uh, Gary Hargis. So th- she has issued some discipline, and I, do, I don't know, but I do think that officers that are raised within the ranks probably have a different mindset than um, an outside officer who's coming in uh, and seeing the department in a different light. And I talked about your story last year where you, you wrote about how the Henderson Police Department was going to vet reporters to make sure they're going to do positive stories about them. Has anybody from the department, while you were doing this investigation, did they talk to you? Did they issue a statement? What was it like? I'll say that I've never been able to to talk to anybody on the phone. I always have to put things, you know, in writing. So uh, what I did was I did got I did get a statement from a PIO, public information officer, you know, saying that when Chief Chadwick took over, there were several incomplete internal affairs cases that she needed to address and she found multiple discrepancies that deviated from best practices. And that was the extent of the statement. There's no specifics in what what those discrepancies were. So I'm not I'm not entirely clear on you know what played into her decision here. What impact do you hope that these stories have with the police department? You know, I'm, my, I always hope for accountability in my stories, and or at the very least to inform the residents of Henderson and you know hold them hold. Um, their local agencies accountable and or at least let them know how their taxpayer dollars are uh, being used. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I hope that I know there's a lot of residents that reached out to me that were concerned and I hope their concerns are heard by their elected officials. Residents did reach out to you after after the story came out? Yes. What what are they saying? That this is concerning. I mean, I think this is something that really hits home to a lot of people. We, We all drive on these roads and they're all concerned that someone maybe didn't get arrested for um, yeah. driving under the influence if, if, in fact, they were when, you know, maybe the public wouldn't be held to that standard as well. And there's there is definitely a lot of dangerous driving on the roads here in Nevada. We've had a lot more fatalities recently, especially in Henderson. There were three pretty serious crashes recently. So I think I think it's a topic that everybody cares about. <laughs> And that's Brianna Erickson of the Las Vegas Review-Journal. And earlier we talked to Bert Johnson of KUR in Reno.